Um, tonight, what I wanted to do was talk a bit about the perception of God that we may have through a, what I would call conceptual teaching as opposed to some deep theological teaching, although there'll be some theology. Tomorrow, we're going to do a five sessions under the banner of what I call Tree of Life Realities. And tonight's kind of a prelude to that. Now, some of you may have been 150 years ago when I was here uh, and did Genesis Factor. Uh, some of you may have been through those classes. Um, but Tree of Life to, uh, Realities tomorrow is built on those concepts. And I will make some references to Genesis Factor. If you don't know what Genesis Factor is, I also call it the Doctrine of Melchizedek. And I have written a, an extensive book. Jeff was part of uh, the manuscript proofing and uh, in, in that book for me, and that was very helpful in that respect. And, uh, but it's a book that's kind of a brick. If I tell people you can either read it or use it as a boat anchor, it works fine. Um, but a lot of the Genesis Factor concepts are in there as well. So, with no further ado, let me share with you where this is going today. Um, about 2013, uh, my wife asked me if I would teach a class on some of the things I was sharing elsewhere in the nation uh, for our church on a Sunday morning. So I pretended I was like a guest speaker. I went into the church and I did class one. And she right away said to me, she said, you need to keep doing this. So over a four-week period, I did a series called Deconstructing God. And the notion of deconstruction and reconstruction is actually is in the world of art. I don't know if anybody's into art a lot here, uh, but you would understand what deconstructionism then is. Deconstructionism, for example, is taking the concept and an idea and literally pulling it apart and seeing all the different pieces of it. Okay? And many times that when an artist does a deconstruction type of work, uh, we look at it and we may say, well, what in the world is he thinking? How could you come to these conclusions? Well, the point is, in a deconstruction, it's not a conclusion, but an actual revealing of the pieces that were there. And in the case of God, many times, as we move through our spirituality as a church since the first century, we have gone through many cycles of deconstruction and reconstruction. And one of the reasons for that is, is as we move forward, things get attached a lot of times culturally, a lot of times based on who's leading, you know, because personalities are involved. And all of a sudden, concepts are attached to God, concepts are attached to how he does what he does. And then all of a sudden, God kind of shows up and says, okay, we got to pull this all apart. We need to take a look at it. And then a reconstruction happens. And we finally feel good. We've got something from God again, and we're moving forward. And then, you know, maybe a century or two goes by, and it's like, okay, time to break this all apart again. <laughs> and I personally feel we have, for maybe the last decade or so, been going through a deconstruction. Uh, so what I did was this four-week series. It's available on DVD if you're interested, too. But a four-week series called Deconstructing God. And I just deconstructed a couple of the key elements that were there uh, for us. And deconstructing does not necessarily mean you leave with an answer in the sense of, oh, this is what it should look like. Rather, it breaks apart and points out the areas where it doesn't look, uh, where, where it shouldn't be there. For example, I think what's important is, you know, Einstein said something, and in light of some of the struggles the church world has gone through 
especially in the last 20 years, and maybe in the last just couple of years, challenges like, you know, is gay marriage okay? Is it homosexuality okay? Is it not okay? And all these different things that we are faced with, I felt God began to say to me, for example, about the gay thing, and I'm not talking about right or wrong, I'm just simply saying he's challenging us on how we perceive it. Sure. And how we perceive God in the midst of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is Einstein, Einstein said this, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. Yes. Very good. Mm-hmm. I think it's brilliant. <coughs> well, he's Einstein, right? <laughs> <laughs> And some of the issues that the church is now facing as well as trying to move forward as we try to touch a generation of people, some very new with very different concepts of life, and our attempt to touch their lives. Well, the reality is we're having difficulty touching their lives because we're void ourselves in that, in that area, and God is trying to do some stuff in us. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is that the problem that we're faced can't be solved by the same level of consciousness that created the problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So God's having to change our consciousness of this. Mm-hmm. So that first four-week series was about deconstructing that to suggest some ideas. The second, then, about a year and a half later, I did, in uh, 2015, Reconstructing God. And it was then, let's take some key issues, now that we kind of broke this apart... Let's put some things back together and take a look at maybe who God really is, at least how he's revealing himself to us today. Mm-hmm. And that also could have been, you know, you can go on for, for weeks and weeks and weeks with something like that as you begin to explore. And that's basically what we did. So what I'm sharing with you tonight is kind of a brief overview of these eight lessons. And on Sunday I may do kind of the back-end lesson of reconstructing God. I'll see how it goes um, as well. But I wanted to present conceptually something tonight. So, you know, when you do that, sometimes folks say, well, where does it say that in the the Bible? Well, as soon as you start doing that, then you start getting into the theology of it. I just want to kind of bring that. Of course, there's going to be a lot of scripture tonight, but I want to bring to you some ideas. Now, the notion of deconstruction, again, going back to the arts, and going back to what this all may look like, is if you had a house, and this particular house is in from middle America, it's about 150, 160 years old, obviously not in very good shape at the moment. <clears throat> but what if I needed on that very plot of land to take this house and build this house? Mm. Obviously this house is new, modernized, looks fantastic, etc., our natural inclination when something new happens, and unfortunately, and this is, I think, how sometimes denominations are born, is we want to just bulldoze the other house and drop the new house on it. Mm-hmm. And we're done. Hallelujah. We got the new thing. But the thing about deconstructionism and reconstructionism, both in art as well as now and what I'm applying to in spirituality, is that what God winds up doing is he makes sure that in the new house there are pieces missing. And it's not because he's trying to play a jigsaw puzzle or a game with you. It's just that there are some valid pieces of the old house that, are, that need to be carried on into the new one. So you can't just bulldoze the old house. You've got to piece by piece break it apart. So ultimately what you can find then is that missing 
pieces so you can add it to the new house and then the new house would be complete. If not, you may have a very drafty house, mm. as pretty as it looks from the outside. Mm. So Jesus, to me, was the first deconstructionist. Mm -hmm. Because he shows up on the scene and he starts breaking apart what they believed and then reconstructing a new perception. And I intentionally use the word believed and perception. Because I want to start by saying to you, in our modern culture, the way we use the word belief, even in Christianity, is not only not helpful, but honestly, God really doesn't care what you believe. Because beliefs can be anything. I mean, the moon is made out of green cheese. Okay, I can believe that. That's very nice. But God is not so much interested in us believing in that respect. He's interested in us perceiving who he really is. Yeah, true. And on the basis of perception, convictions are created within our hearts. I use the word conviction there because the Greek word pistios, which is the word many times we translate, translate belief or faith, has its root in the concept of being convicted about something in reality. It's not about, this is what I choose to believe. Or I read the Bible and this is what I believe about it. <laughs> Beliefs do not change you or move you forward. Once in a while, we have accidental beliefs that are congruent to the nature and purposes and principles of God. And what I call them, is, as, as a minister did years ago, a faith accident. Where by accident, I believe something that's congruent to spirituality, so something occurs where there's fruit in it, and I think it's my beliefs, when actually I then may turn around and try to go right down the same line, and then it doesn't work two days from now, and I'm wondering, what's the matter with me? Maybe I need to go on a fast for three weeks to figure out what happened to me. All these things I start going through, and it's really because I never perceived anything. Mm -hmm. But it's different when you see something. Yes. We were talking last night with the leaders. 99% of the people, I say 99.99, I'm not going to say 100% because there's always one person to stick up their hands, you know, which is fine, and that may be true. But really not one of us ever got saved because we believed the scripture. Mm -hmm. We got saved because we had an encounter with the living Christ. Amen. But what happens to us many times is we then trade the encounter with the living Christ for a theological belief system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you change the world by the continual encounter with the living God, the living Christ, the living Jesus. In contrast to a really correct theology that a group agrees with, and if you agree with this theology, you're part of my team. So what we want to do is look at that for a minute. Now we just want to talk a little bit about deconstruction just a little bit further. It's interesting because I just uh, was talking to a friend of mine who had a certain point of view about men and women in ministry, etc. And then I said, you know, well, what about this verse? Just to show you how God loved to upset the apple cart. Jeremiah 31, 22. Can somebody read that up on the screen good and loud? How long will you go this way and that rebellious daughter 
Indeed, the Lord will create a new thing on the earth. Woman will perfect the man. So, you know, we've had the picture of how men are the protector and they're the head of the house, etc., etc. And then Jeremiah says, yeah, well, guess what? I'm going to do something different now. <laughs> Wait a minute. How could you? As a matter of fact, it's even more powerful is the Hebrew phrase here. The last word in that sentence is gavir, which actually means a warrior. So now a woman's going to protect a warrior. <laughs> I like it. Nukva in Hebrew is, 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 is female. So it's actually said the first word is nukva, which is female. It's a female shall encompass and protect the warriors. God says, I'm just going to do a new thing. This is, this is the direction we're going to go now. Wait a minute. So what happens to us then when God is like that is we have some of these issues that hinder us from moving forward in the transition. I like to put them this way, hindrances of transition or veils to divine revelation, depending upon how you want to look at it. Or maybe a veil is literally like a curtain that's in front of what you need to see, but you can't see it. Which is the whole issue of the notion of the veil in the temple. It, the, the, the representation of the Ark of the Presence, which we would call the presence of God, was right there. But it was veiled so you couldn't see it. And the reality is, most of us never, never recognize anything that's there if I can't see it. Right. right. It's about perception. I could say, most of us don't believe it's there because of the veil. But that can, we can have all kinds of beliefs there. Some may believe something is beyond the veil. But what does it look like? Another person may say, well, I don't believe anything's beyond the veil. See, that's in beliefs. But when you start looking at perceptions, the reality is this. The curtain's down. And what Jesus came to do was to rip the curtain. Yeah, very good. And, and the interesting thing, and we may talk about this tomorrow a bit more, the interesting thing about Jesus ripping the curtain is he res- res- resolved the belief issue. Because when the curtain that he ripped, you all know the story, right? About how, you know, when he rose from the dead, the curtain was ripped from top to bottom. You all read that? You ever heard that before? The thing is, the curtain that he ripped revealed something very unsettling. There was no Ark of the Covenant there. That was stolen 350 years earlier. Right. So what he was saying was, what you were believing was never there. You were believing in an empty religion. Yeah. Yeah. So now, what we're trying, what Jesus was actually doing is you were believing in that which was empty, but at the same time, I'm revealing to you not only where your beliefs are empty, but I'm also showing you what you can see. So the first hindrance to transition is our beliefs. Right. What do you believe about what you think the Word of God says? <laughs> Let me give you a hint about what belief does. Belief makes us feel good. Beliefs calm fears. I'm talking about how we use the word belief in our modern culture. 
Belief calms fears. But sometimes perceiving something, I mean, how many times an angel showed up and folks fell on their face in fear and the angel had to say, fear not. Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes what we perceive will unsettle you. Yeah. But how many of us really want the revelation of Christ, which means I may be wrecked first for a while? <laughs> yeah. So what is our beliefs? It's our picture of our world. The next hindrance to transition is morality. We actually think morals make a difference in what God is going to do. That's a belief system. Got nothing to do with scripture. What? See, right there maybe even there was a little. Wait a minute, I felt the ground move on that one a little bit. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. But in the simplest sense of the word, no, morality didn't move God a whole lot in the life of King David who committed adultery and then followed by murder, and God still said he's a man after his heart. And on top of it, the Messiah will get the throne of his kingdom. So evidently morality doesn't move God like it does us. Okay, so I guess I should move on from that. Right? You can hear all of a sudden that, you know, in, in American television, you go out in the Wild West and you have the quiet, the quiet desert and the tumbleweed go by. And there's so much scorn I saw one go by in the back of the room right then. But what is that? It's the codes of our world. When I say your world or our world, I'm not talking about the codes that the secular world is talking about. I'm talking about the, the codes that I have in my life. Yeah. I mean... How about the woman at the well? Probably the most famous of all. She's married five times. She's living with a guy now. Jesus never says, don't stop and stop living with the guy. And yet she becomes an evangelist, if you will, for Jesus, where an entire community comes to Christ, and we still don't know if she ever stopped living with the guy or she married him. <laughs> Matter of fact, in my theology, I'll just share this on Sunday, in my theological belief system, now this is, this is just, I'll call it this way, a hypothesis. Because, and it's based on the fact that the Pharisees did this on three or four other occasions with Jesus, with people. Two chapters later, the Pharisees are bringing a woman who's caught in the act of adultery to see if Jesus would accuse her. I've often wondered, was it the same woman? Because if it was, then that discredits everything else that happened, as far as the law is concerned. Jesus turns around and says, okay, so... Who, uh, who of you have cast? Who of you have sinned to cast the first stone? And of course, we know how that worked out. And what I we find interesting, it says, and they started walking away. The eldest first. Which I wonder if the elders had more problems, had more rocks in their bags than the other guys. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shoot, Jesus. And the young guys still like, oh, maybe. Uh, I'm feeling a little righteous. The older guy's are like, yeah, I've probably been with her myself. So. <laughs> and thirdly, finally, here we have religion, which is a dogmatic expression of our beliefs in morality, or you could say the practice of our beliefs and code of ethics. These really become hindrances, because when God shows up on the scene, many times he starts breaking the rules we think we have. Like... A man that protects a woman. Not anymore. That's changed, Jeremiah. Boom. We're going to do something different. That's why sometimes people have said to me, and I said, as a matter of fact, I shared this at a pastor's conference of all places about five, six years ago, and I really felt impressed to say it. I said, you know, because a lot of us pastors, 
at least in America, not here because you guys are in way better shape than we are here. Um, maybe you're just broken in different spaces than we are. I don't know. But, you know, have these things about lines of authority. There's lines of authority. Yeah. And so I started talking about a young fella. What if a young fella got up in church on a Sunday morning in his, I don't know, his Led Zeppelin t-shirt with ripped jeans, long hair, maybe it smelled a little like that funny leaf. <laughs> Grabs the microphone and says to the senior pastor, God wants you to know that your ministry is about to come to an end. And turns around to some guy on the second row and says, and you're called and anointed to take over from here. We would think, that's so out of, out of order. That no, never happened. But what I just did was describe to you the ministry of John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Here's this wild nutcase of a guy pointing to the Pharisees and calls them vipers and everything else. Yeah. Tells them basically, your ministry's over, and this guy, who's the Lamb of God, take away the sins of the world, my cousin, mind you, is taken over from here. <laughs> Point being, whatever you think about God, write it in pencil. It could be erased. Now, for me, this is a personal, and still is, an ongoing personal experience. And for me, the way it started was like this. It was about, gosh, now about 25 years ago. Um, I've been in ministry for about 30-some-odd years. I mean, I mean, already, I've been in ministry 31 years. But it was about six years into the ministry. And, you know, I came from a large, word-of-faith, charismatic church where in two years we went from 2,500 people to 5,000. Wow. Wow. God, what are you doing? Now, there was a whole lot of factors in how we grew. And sadly, that church really doesn't exist anymore. That may tell you something about big ministry. Moving forward. The next phase of that was is that now I'm started our church, and I'm thinking a year from now we're going to be 150, 200, 300 people, no problem, because I'm the great, I'm 25 years old, and I'm the great man of faith and power, come on. (laughs) Didn't work out that way. After a year, we had maybe 18 people. And I'm depressed, I'm thinking I'm letting God down, we're actually just letting the God I created down, called me. Yeah. So, is my accent tough? By the way, I could slow down a little bit. Is my accent is a problem? Okay. I forget that because I can kind of understand you, you may not exactly understand me. Because, after all, you all talk funny. I'm the one who talks correctly. <laughs> that's a hindrance. There's a belief that's not exactly yeah. So what happened, it was around 19, well, it was almost 10 years now into the ministry, about 1995, at the advent of Windows 95. I remember a friend and I were talking about a movie, I don't know if you ever heard of it, called The Dirty Dozen. Mm -hmm. Well, I went on this new thing called the Internet and typed in the web browser, Dirty Dozen, and pressed Enter. 
And I saw some dirty dozen stuff that had nothing to do with the movie, <laughs> if you understand what I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> well, in one respect, that opened up a door for me. <clears throat> and before you know it, I'm into internet porn and the whole stuff. And I was really depressed. Because especially, because I'm growing up with a morality issue, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be good moral people, don't get me wrong here, to eat. He just went out and said, it's great, we can all look at porn. That's not what I'm saying. And I hope that came clear in my accent. <laughs> but the thing was, is the condemnation I was living under. Because we're trying to start a church. I'm trying to be a good father. Trying to be a good husband. Of course, my wife, we've got two little children. So there's the issue of, you know, if, as, as one great counselor said, if you want a wonderful contraceptive, have children. <laughs> the greatest hindrance, Esther Perel is her name, she says the greatest hindrance sometimes for hot romantic passion is have children. <laughs> There's a truth to that. So we were in that mode, so I get into this, and what's really sad is on Sunday nights, uh, once a month, we would get together with the Methodist church, who had a real passion for healing, so our Word of Faith charismatic <coughs> church with the Methodist church, we would get together and we'd have healing services for the entire community. Amen. And Monday, I would be the most guiltiest, horrible feeling person there could be. Because throughout that week, of course I messed up. And then I would preach on Sunday, have healing service on Sunday night with results... And I would be in a total mess in myself on come Monday. Mm -hmm. now, I don't know if anybody here, this is a Bible college group, so I don't know, that's why I'm kind of talking like this at, at this point. But I don't know if anybody else has been into that mode, but I've been in that mode with condemnation and self. And what's worse is the more you're condemned and the more guilty you become, the more you look for something to comfort you and you go right back to the thing that makes you guilty. Mm. <clears throat> so... What was interesting is and a member of this Methodist church looked exactly like this. Of all things, his name was Moses. And it's the truth. And, but the thing is, Moses um, had ripped jeans where, I mean, he was an older man, ripped jeans to the point where you could see his, what we would call pants, or we would say underwear. So his trousers would be ripped. I mean, and he kind of smelled of stuff. You know, he wasn't the most, he was really close to what we would call a transient or a, a, a tramp or a bum. I don't know what word, bum here is this, I know, I'm sorry. But that's what we call them in, in, in America and it has nothing to do with this. It has to, never mind. Sometimes explaining English is harder than Hebrew and Greek. So, uh, by the way, what's our time frame like? Because, so, well... I'm just curious. Why the preachers always ask me, like, yeah. you know, when I'm sat here? I'm right. like, I should have asked first. <laughs> well, see, originally I was told it's from 11 to 5, and, or 11 to 4, and for me, it's only 12.06 in the afternoon in California time, so i got a good four hours to go. <laughs> Hallelujah. That's tomorrow, John. <laughs> well, technically, well, yeah, it's, it's, yes, it's still one to work eight hours behind you, so I was going to say it's maybe over there yesterday, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so 
another belief system thing. I don't know. I don't get it. To answer your question, maybe 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock. Yeah. Beautiful. So i got to really put some steamroller into this. Get moving fast. Because I'm taking my time. Anyway, this man, Moses, um, was very touched at the service. I did not know this. And it's that Monday morning. I'm really stressing about my week, my thought life. The healing service made me feel real condemned again, and I'm right back in that cycle. And God managed to break through my very thick-headed Italian skull and said, I'm going to show you I love you, period. And Wednesday, just a few days later, I get a letter in the mail. Actually, my wife got the letter, and she walked and said it was, it was addressed to you. And it was written with not the greatest penmanship. And I opened this letter, and literally in this letter is $500. And in the letter with the $500 is a little letter from Mr. Moses. This man with ripped jeans that smells bad that's one step away from living at the curb. And he said, God has blessed me so much. I just wanted to share this with you. Love, Moses. <laughs> I broke and cried. It blew my mind. So God, first the spirit broke through, told me this, and then it actually happens where God is blessing me because he loves me, not because I'm a perfect person. Right. <laughs> but I had a problem because I was already doing some of this Genesis factor stuff about legalism and grace. But see, this is, here's the thing. A lot of us do it from a theological point of view. It's not in our practice. Sure. There's a, an, an ex excellent book for those of you who are going into ministry or have a desire for ministry. It's called The Emotion Emotionally Healthy Church by Peter Scazzaro. And Peter says this at the beginning of his book. Here's a guy who has pastoring a church of over a thousand people. And he comes home one day and his wife says, I'm leaving you, goodbye. And he's like, how can you do that? You're working with me in the ministry. And she said, that's the exact point. Mm. His marriage started with fall. He was, there was, he was such into doing ministry, he forgot the love of his life. Mm. Mm. And he says this, he says, I remember wondering, am I supposed to be living so miserably and so pressured in order that other people can experience the joy, it can experience joy in God? Crazy. And again, I remember wondering, am I supposed to be living so miserably and so pressured in order that other people mm -hmm. can experience joy in God? It sure felt that way. So my challenge is, is if you look in your heart and you find some conflict in it, maybe some distance or strain or a lack of lack or shame in your connection with God, chances are you've allowed a religion with a false God to emerge in your life. Yeah. <clears throat> Very good. You know, many of us have been taught that things like cars, Houses, money, success in business, and yes, let's even add to it a great relationship with a wonderful sex life. Why is this? That, that man, we would 
here already has talked about sex several times. You know, we are the only group of people that give people a license to have it and do nothing about it. <laughs> and sure, we're not going to talk about sex. We give people, it's like saying, we're not going to talk about the automobile, but I will give you a license to drive it. <laughs> I mean, you get to go to driver's ed for how long? You've got to have a learner's permit and everything. We in the church would never allow that. But, and then two or three years down the road, and I'm not advocating certain premarital things here, but what I am saying is let me get three, four, five years down the road and some even great ministers wind up crashing and burning in their relationships. Mm -hmm. Because the one thing we never talk about is destroying us. Well, here's the thing. We're told these things are not as important to us, and we need the Lord. We even quote Matthew's, what, 633, you know? That we're to seek after righteousness. But here's the deal. You ever notice the most prayer requests people have? They need finances. Yeah. They need a roof over their head, transportation to get to their job. They want to maybe get a promotion. And dear God, they want their marriages and relationships to be okay. Mm -hmm. The very things we're told we're not to focus on become yeah. the very crux of 99% of our prayer requests. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. What's the, what is that? It's what I call this year Jesus, the false Jesus, mm. the false God we've created called Jesus. Mm -hmm. The other way, way you can call it the golden calf of religion. Mm. Now many of you have probably heard the story of the golden calf out of Exodus 32, 4 and 5 where Moses is up the hill receiving the commandments and simultaneously down the hill the Children of Israel are getting a little restless, so Aaron comes up with the idea. What we're going to do is give me all the blessing you received leaving Egypt. Because remember, they came out of Egypt with all this prosperity. Mm -hmm. Give me all that. And it says how he fashioned and engraved and molded this wonderful golden calf. Mm -hmm. And what it says in English, in most of our translations, and he sa he sa it says... And the next day we'll have a feast unto the Lord. Well, the mm -hmm. word Lord there is capitalized. Mm -hmm. And in Hebrew he says, the next day we're going to have a feast unto Yahweh. They named the golden calf Yahweh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, Moses comes down the mountain. You know how that story goes. And Aaron's response is, I don't know. They gave me gold. They threw it in the fire. <laughs> Here's a golden calf. <laughs> My suggestion to you is if we have a golden Jesus. Yeah. Amen. Amen. We've, we've created a religious Jesus, which according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, talks about the Antichrist, which I find very interesting because most of our eschatology, our end-time theology, talks about some guy, you know, back in the 80s, I don't know if you remember, some of you, some of you are not that old, some of us have been around for a while, but... Back in the 80s, there was a whole eschatology thing went on about Gorbachev, at least out of America. He must be the Antichrist because he had a birthmark on the top of his head that that must be the symbol of the old empire that was 
of the one of the heads of the dragons that were stabbed, and he's now the reconstruction of it. Yeah. Step away from the Bible before you hurt yourself and somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> well, in First John four three it says, if there's any truth about Antichrist, he John says, they were with us, but they left us and are not of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You want to know what the Antichrist, whatever that may be, comes from? It's us. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And what winds up happening when we in, invent this religious Jesus, this religious God, we wind up with our beautiful dove of peace, the Holy Spirit, that which gives us peace and joy in our life, that winds up in the crosshairs. Of, the, of our religious Jesus, and it destroys it. Our spirituality is destroyed. It's all based on how good we are. It's all based on how good I'm not. And then, right. as soon as I get something right, then it's going to be all based on how good you are, uh-huh. or how good you're not. Because yeah. now I become the golden calf moral police. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm. Dangerous. <laughs> So, I want to tell you a little story. And this is where we're going to park for a bit. Because Jesus, in a culture that was filled of a religious point of view, of Yahweh, the lawgiver, and that Yahweh was this legalistic, angry God at sin. When actually, that's not who Yahweh was. And let me tell you something before we even get into tomorrow. Consider this. The law was really created or delivered up on Mount Sinai by the finger of God as a request, really, of the people. Absolutely. And consider this. Before Moses ever got down the mountain, the law was already broken. And consider this even a little further. While God is inscribing the law that they desire, simultaneously a false Yahweh is being created. There's something to this. So Jesus now shows up on the scene and is about to deliver this parable, what most everybody knows is called the prodigal son, to the people because he's going to totally flip their concept of who God is. He's going to deconstruct it and reconstruct it in one parable. And of course, it's these kinds of constant deconstructing and reconstructing he's doing of God that's going to eventually bring him to the cross. For me, men and women of God, I don't know about you, the cross is not an angry God who's really ticked off at sin, that's putting it all on his son, as a good child abusing father would, and destroying this son because he loves the other children a whole lot as well. Doesn't make sense. For me, and we'll talk maybe tomorrow a little bit more about this, but the cross is an angry humanity at God that ultimately can't deal with a God of love 
uh -huh. in the face of a God they created of morality. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And as a result, I'm going to kill the God of grace and love because I'd rather keep my false God yeah. of law and condemnation. Yeah. Oh. Mm -hmm. Jesus. Hallelujah. So, there once was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, that's fine. Luke 15, verse 11. You don't have to if you want to. I'd rather you go on the journey with me than get stuck. If you want to take notes, that's fine. I believe it's being recorded. If you want to go back over something I said, if the Holy Spirit sparks something in you, write that down. But, you know, if I refer to something theologically like on that Hebrew word or whatever, don't worry about trying to figure out how the Hebrew word is spelled phonetically and all that stuff. <laughs> we do that, you know. And I'm not saying this is not, I only have a short period of time with you over the next three days. If I had more time, we can break all that down and take those notes. And that's great. That's good stuff to know. But I'd rather get, have you experience something here. Yeah. Then get it all right up here. Does that make sense? Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. So there was a man who had two sons. Okay, I'll wait for that tomorrow. That's good. I'm not going to this. The reality of the two sons just knocks me out. Anyway, the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the portion of good that fall to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. He divided to them his livelihood. He gave his livelihood to both of them. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And not many days after, the younger son gathered to himself together and journeyed to a far country where he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And those of you probably know that the word prodigal means wasteful. So he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Now, Go with me for a moment. When we read these things on, for face value, that's the power of, of Hebraic thinking. Because even though the New Testament was written in Greek, it was written by Hebraic thinkers. Which means this concept of what's called block logic, which I'll talk more about tomorrow, is that there's always a double, sometimes triple entendre to every word that's being said. What was really the possession of this young man? Because what follows shortly has nothing to do with the wealth it was that was given to him. But maybe we think about it. I got this inheritance. You know, I got this big bank account now, and now I'm going to go spend it all. Because as it unfolds, he goes to a distant country. Okay, so he leaves his father's house. He goes to a place very far from the house of the father. Or at least that's how it's perceived. He wasted his possessions. He wasted whatever this thing was that he possessed with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land. Notice that. It didn't say there was a famine in the land and he was hungry. When he spent what he had, there arose a famine. Mm. He was the funding element here. Mm. He was the source in the distant country, whatever that was. And when he spent what he had, then there was a famine. May I suggest to you ahead of time that when we spend what God has given us, 
the world is in famine spiritually. Mm. Wow. And the world is in famine right now because we in the church world have spent what he's given to us as a possession and wasted it. If we think the world is in a mess, don't blame the world. So all of a sudden, these things, there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living, are a lot more than simply the stuff. But when he spent all there arose a famine in the land, and he began to be in want. He began to be in want. He began. He had something that he wasted that created the famine that now makes him wanting. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. Notice he wasn't joined until he had lack and spent what he had. Mm. Now he joins himself to a citizen of that country. And it says, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. So now he is a swine feeder. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Watch the double entendres that are here. He's a swine feeder. Now, most of us probably know, if you've ever studied Jewish culture, that swines rep- represent something unclean or ungodly, those kinds of things. So, obviously, he's not in a good state. Verse 16. And notice what it says in verse 16. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. There's your double entendre again. What do you mean? He was the one with the pods in his hands, feeding the swine. Why is he waiting for somebody to give something to him? He, or he had what he could have fed himself with. If the issue is, the system he is caught in never feeds you. Right. Mm. Yeah. Right. We'll talk about the system in a moment. But when he spent all, there arose a famine in the land. He began to be in want. He went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him in the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. No one gave him anything. He has a real problem. And the problem shows up in the very next verse, verse 17. This is where it starts to come together. I've really gone, again, this is eight weeks worth of teaching on two DVD sets. So, you know, I'm really compressing it. But I want to give you an idea. Tomorrow we'll open up some things and we go into Tree of Life. But listen to this then. It says, but when he came to himself, he said. I love the Aramaic translation of the New Testament here. It reads it this way. When he came next to his soul, he said. Mm. You see, this whole parable, as most everything in the spiritual world is, is all about internal states. Where's the kingdom of God? It's all internal states. We keep trying to fix things out there, thinking life is going to be better. And all God is asking us to do is let him become a revelation in here. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. That's good. Oh, if we can just prevent gay marriage, 
everything's going to be fine. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Not gay marriage. We'll talk about that attitude. Where does that come from? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gay You really think gay marriage is the issue? No. Of course not. Matter of fact, for the church world to even be contemplating the gay marriage thing, kind of, I, I find it funny because let's face it, most of us don't have those who have issues with gay marriage. You don't have issues with gay marriage. You have issues with gay sex. Mm-hmm. Marriage is not the problem. It's the sex that's the problem for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's another story. But the challenge is, see, there's that preacher from America going again talking about sex. <laughs> well, we're all having it, so we might as well have a discussion about it. <laughs> I say, the young lady said, no, I'm not so well at some time. <laughs> someplace, somewhere. <laughs> When he came next to his soul, you see, that when he came to himself, it says in the New King James, you see, he was fragmented within his own heart. That was his possession. His possession was his identity. And when he spent his identity and wasted it, then there was a famine in the land because the, the land exists by... Your identity. Mm-hmm. And he would have gladly fed himself even of what swine, with that which was unclean, would eat. But he couldn't. He stayed hungry. Because whatever that is, the swine issue, whatever that uncleanness, whatever, it always keeps you hungry. It never fills you until you come next to your soul, until you realize and have that inter and in encounter within yourself. But unfortunately, guess what shows up? He says, in the, the scripture tells us, this is exactly what it says. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Here it comes, <laughs> Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Stop right there. Who said so? Mm. Yeah. The broken identity says so. Yeah. The identity and religion will destroy identities. Yes. Yes. To me, the pigs are religion. Yeah. That's the ultimate uncleanness. It's not about moral correctness. Because as far as I'm concerned, as we're all working it out, the more I get to know the real me in God, certain moral things begin to take care of themselves. But if I externally get all my... Try, oh, I'm perfectly moral. Hallelujah, I got myself together. You know, I, I'm morally correct. All of a sudden, it's feeding something in me, which we'll talk about tomorrow, that actually fuels the power of Satan himself. Mm-hmm. True. Father, I have sinned against heaven... And in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The golden calf of religion shows up. Now, in Reconstructing God, I bring 
Einstein back into a picture into the picture here. We've already said Einstein made an interesting statement that no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created. So religion cannot resolve the religious problem. I wrote a book called Why Ministers Fall. I think you wrote something on the back of that book for me. In the book Why Ministers Fall, I don't really indict ministers who fought. At the time I was writing the book, I had 15 or 16 ministers that started around when I did that have lost their ministries because of sexual involvement with people, etc., etc. And trust me, I wasn't walking on water either, as I already pointed out. So at this point, I'm now writing a book, having come through some stuff and learned some stuff now, writing a book on this issue, because what I began to realize is that the system of religion we were a part in were aiding and abetting the moral failure. You know, if you think about it, there is, in America we call it the Bush Doctrine. Now, I don't know if you like George Bush or not, but we call it the Bush Doctrine anyway. And the Bush Doctrine is this. If you harbor a terrorist and aid and abet their well-being, then you are guilty of the terrorist actions by association. Okay, and I think Britain probably may feel similar, right? Well, guess what? If religion aids and embeds moral failure, hmm. then a man or a woman who falls, we talk about restoring them back into the ministry, there's no point in restoring somebody back into the system that caused the failure to begin Something else has to change. Yeah. Well, Einstein, in the same way that no consciousness that created the problem can solve the problem, he also said something very interesting here. I cannot imagine a God who rewards and punishes the objects of his creation and is but a reflection of human frailty. Shall we say that again? (laughs) Accent purposes here. I cannot, I tell you what, how about... One of you all read it. Maybe it would sound clearer. Who would like to read that? I cannot imagine a God who rewards and punishes the objects of his creation and is but the reflection of his human creation. Wow. When you start thinking about the gods of mythology, etc., especially Western theology, everything from Zeus to Jupiter to... um, other names, you know, Vulcan, uh, Apollo, Athena. To think of really how human they acted. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's something to that story. Well, if we continue back then with our prodigal son story, it then says he roamed when he, he arose and came to his father. Now, here's another little thing about spiritual dynamics. He arose and came to his father. Well, wait a minute. In the natural world of the story, he was far off yet. Mm. Mm, right. But according to this, he's already there. Mm. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, so he says, but when he was still a great way off. Jesus is trying to show a picture, but he's still infusing it with tr- spiritual truth. Again, the Aramaic comes to our rescue, I think, a little bit, and it says this. He arose and came next to his father, but while he was afar off. The scripture is telling us in the pig pen, in the pigsty, in the place where the pigs are, the moment he came to himself, he was with the Father. Mm. 
The thing that made him afar off. See, Jesus is showing us your fa- you and your father are closer than your own breath. Yes. yes. Always. Yes. Regardless where you think you may be, to the young man, I'm still a far way off. To the father, you just showed up. <laughs> yeah. Because respectfully, you never left. Yeah. Right. Let me see, go really jump out here and suggest something to you. We never left the Garden of Eden. No. We just can't perceive it. Amen. Amen. Yes. Very good. Verse 18, I will rise and go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of like your hired servants. Says the spirit of the religious Jesus, or the religious Yahweh, or the golden calf. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. Jesus is now painting a picture of God in a totally different way than they ever thought before. It's this. His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Stop right there. This guy just got out of slop with pigs. Doesn't say anywhere the guy's clean. Doesn't say anywhere he doesn't sm- he smells good. Doesn't say anything about him cleaning himself up. Mm. What it still says is the father embraces him and kisses him. Mm. Our religious stench. Our religious stench is the word I'm using. I didn't say our moral stench because the morality of this doesn't even matter because if you thought the pigs and all this stuff was some immoral thing he was into which is fine I'll go with you there that doesn't matter to the father either it doesn't it just doesn't and Jesus is, is creating a picture of a God they've never seen before because the God that they've heard of before was that if, if the Pharisee so much as saw somebody that was unclean, he'd have to walk around them. Because I can't touch that. But no, Jesus is actually saying something very different. His father saw him, had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Verse 21. And his son said to him, here it comes. Now what? The father saw him, had compassion, ran, fell on his neck and kissed him. I will personally send you one of the Deconstructing God DVDs if you can tell me where that shot is from, where that photo from. Anybody know what? Where that's from? That's a real photo from something. I'll give you a hint. It was on television. Well, get to keep another DVD, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That's from the final episode of Lost. When the son is embraced by his father. Really good good series. Lasted for six seasons and ends with really a prodigal son. Very What does he say? Here it comes again. We'll just toss away the love of God. And he says, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Interestingly, then it says, and the father said to his servants, where were the servants? Where did they come from? <laughs> well, you see, the servants, the angelic realm, whatever you want to call it, they're right there with you. Remember, the, according to Jesus, the father ran to his son. So evidently a whole bunch of servants ran with him, or more so, when you, he came to himself in the pigsty, it was all right. The entire provision of the eternal source was there. Amen. Amen. And he said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, and the sandals on his feet. Don't we clean them up first? <laughs> Father didn't say, well, matter of fact, Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the Father doesn't even say, don't say that. <laughs> he doesn't even acknowledge those That's words. Right. It's not even in his thinking. Yeah. May I suggest to you, God is deaf <laughs> to anything less than his nature. Right. I say that figuratively. You understand. God's not that deaf. But there is something to that because in the garden, when the Adam messed up, what was he saying? Adam, where are you? You know, God has having one type of... He is God, so he gets to do what he wants to do. But if you think about it, he only has one kind of conversation. And that's how amazing he was. So when we come to him with, oh God, I'm such a sinner. You don't know what I just did the other day. I really messed up. <laughs> Great to see you, son. Yeah. Put a robe on him. Put a ring on him. Thank Put new you, sandals Lord. on him. And each of those have their meanings and what that is. We won't get into that now. And, but here's the key. The father then says something in this that really upsets the apple cart. Okay, so now we're clothing the son with royal garments of representation of the father's family. Hasn't even been so-called cleaned up. Because let me tell you something, in the eyes of the father, he was never dirty in the first place. It was in his eyes. He then says this, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Bring... Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And then he says this phrase. And bring out the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. Now for years I walked around teaching that the fat, killing the fatted calf was a symbol of the sacrifice of Jesus. First of all, that's horrible hermeneutics. Because throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus has always been attached to a lamb, yeah. never a calf. Mm, that's true. Rather, and in this particular scenario, here we go now, the first time, if I'm going to be faithful, to the law first mentioned in hermeneutics, the very first time the word calf is used, which is egal in Hebrew, is in Exodus 32, verse 4 and 5, the golden calf. Mm. And let me tell you something. What happens is this. This is not at all what we're talking about here. This is not no sacrifice of Jesus. What's being told here, actually, is the slaying 
of our religious self-centered view of God is the beginning of the celebration of our newly discovered identity, authority, and path as his image. Mm. Yep. He's saying, let's kill the fatted calf of the false God, son, that you held. <laughs> and let's go celebrate. Yes. Oh. And that's what it says. The second they killed the fatted calf, the second they killed that calf of religion, celebration breaks out. Yes. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> but then something happens. He's so thrilled, the father. He says, this is my son. He was dead and alive again. He was lost and is found. For those of you who like to study scripture, the word lost means destroyed. So whenever you read those scriptures about people going to be destroyed, well, guess what? My son was dead and is alive again. He was destroyed and now has been found. Powerful. Destruction cannot hinder God. Whatever you think it is that will destroy your life doesn't hinder God. Very good. And then it says this. And they began to be merry. So man, there's some noise. Now understand, we never left wherever this meeting place was, which was at the pigsty, but evidently it's also at the Father's house. So there's no time or distance in the spirit here. Good. Then we meet somebody. Now his older brother. Ooh. <laughs> Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Notice the older brother's scenario. The older brother was in the field doing the work of the father, but he wasn't in the house. But he was close enough where we can hear what's going on in the house. But rather going to, you would think, go, I work for the father, I'm going to talk to my dad about this. He doesn't talk to the father, he talks to a servant. Why? He doesn't have a relationship with the father. Even though he works for him. I'm going to suggest to you, when religion occupies our thinking, we cease to work for the father. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. The deception of religion or the delusion is that we still think we're working. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Especially when we become when we become the morality police yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. in True. the community. Yeah. True. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near the house, heard the music and dancing, called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Notice what do these things mean? This minister, for lack of a better word, this religious Christian, this religious Jew, whatever labels you want to put on it, this religious person didn't understand the celebration. Mm -hmm. Something is really wrong here. Verse 27, and he said to him, the servant, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. What? You killed the religious calf? <laughs> Are you out of your mind? But guess what? He was angry and would not go in 
anger never, religious anger never allows you into the presence of the Father. That's right. When we think we have to put our spiritual shoes in the ground and come against the government or come against this legislation because we've got to be righteous in our nation, all that stuff, you're not in the Father's house. No. Yeah. Therefore, guess what happens? The Father, it says in the, the next part of verse 28, it says, He was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his Father came out and pleaded with him. What is the Father doing? The same thing. The picture is being drawn again. You see, the older brother is a prodigal son, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. The difference is how they've wasted their identities. Mm. Mm-hmm. What is the father doing? See, the father always comes out of his house of celebration looking for another son to come home. And here is a son that is working with the, in the fields that actually believe he's working with the father, that unsadly the father has to plead with, would you come into the celebration? Mm. Yeah. See, here's the catch of Jesus' painting. The nature of the father doesn't change, irrespective of what side of the spectrum you're in. Yeah. Very good. The problem is the religious type of prodigal has a lot more difficulty hearing the pleading of the father. What happens next? Verse 29. So he answered and said to his father, here, listen to these words. Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a goat that I may make merry with my friends. Again, verse 29, he says, Though these many years I've been serving you. How many times? Man, I've been serving God for a long time. So, get over yourself. (laughs) Well, I've been in the ministry 30 years. So what? So what if I have this kind of attitude? Yeah. I haven't been in the ministry for seven years. I've been serving a delusion, a false God called Jesus. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. Oh, oh you're, you're just so righteous. Wow. You're, you're, you're just, oh, my goodness. You kept all 613 commandments of Jewish law. That's amazing. Especially in the Big Ten. I keep stumbling on the first 10. I can't even think about the first 613. <laughs> I never transgressed your And you never gave me a young goat. Wait. Hey. At the beginning of this, he gave them both all his livelihood. Yeah. He is so deluded, he didn't even recognize what he had. See, he is a prodigal son. Right. He wasted the identity he was given, mm. and he wasted it in the field, thinking he was doing the Father's work, keeping commandments. Mm. Mm. Wow. 
Yeah. I like the way it goes on. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. You never gave me a young goat that I make merry with my friends. He's not talking about making merry and celebrating with the father in the father's house. He wants to go have friendly merry with his other religious buddies. <laughs> <laughs> Then he says, and of course here it comes, you've all heard this before. But as soon as this son of yours came, not my brother, this son of yours. <laughs> soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. Here's the only person that knows what kind of sin that the, the other brother was into. Or at least the only one to mention it. Mm-hmm. The father surely didn't care. Father never mentioned it. Welcomed him into the celebration. Gave him garments. Gave him his ring of authority. New shoes to walk a new way. Not the older brother. Older brother's keeping tabs because he's a commandment guy. See, I do all the right things because when I'm checking off my list of doing right things, I also know people that do wrong things. <laughs> Don't laugh too hard. I got your list too. You understand? He's right to put you on the list. <laughs> he devoured your identity on harlots. I'm glad. I'm still, learning, I'm still uncovering the nature of the father in my life. Because for me, I would just want to take that brother right now and go, <laughs> you wasted it on all your religious thinking. Yeah. But that wouldn't be any better. <laughs> no. Sure. <laughs> Notice how it says, as soon as the son of yours who devoured your livelihood with hardest, you killed the fatted calf for him. You killed all the religious ideas that we ever had, all the good morals. How can you allow people like that to fellowship with us and not even correct his life? <laughs> 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 and he said to him, notice he doesn't even acknowledge what the son is saying about the other brother. He says, son, you are always with me. Thank you, brother. <laughs> and all that I have is yours. Thank you, brother. <laughs> it was right that, what? We should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. <laughs> and the parable ends there. <coughs> ends in this amazing contrast of a celebration in a house with maybe not perfect people by religious standards. And here's the catch, if we can get this through our minds, and this may break some things in our minds. We think all these other things is still the perfection God is looking for. <laughs> and that through his love and us coming to know this identity, God will fix all these things so actually he can love them more. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. Mm. 
ghetto, ghetto load of this, in the midst of the moral brokenness and all these things, which are all religious stuff, God looks at you and says, the shucket, did I say that right? Yeah. You are already perfect because I say so and I can see me in you. You are my image. Yeah. And there's nothing that you can do to be more my image. Very good. Yeah, but what if I do this thing? I see my image. The problem was, you didn't see you're at my image. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Even if you do, it still don't matter. <laughs> if I'm going to be honest to the gospel, now we'll talk about some other things tomorrow that may fill in the gaps, but if you really, to me, going to bring the message of the gospel, you've got to unhinge yourself from all this other stuff that the older brother had. Mm. Because what's interesting is that last phrase was lost or in destruction and is found is a period there and the parable ends there the parable ends with the father pleading with an older brother who did all the right thing knew the sins of his other pleading with him would you come into this celebration well we don't know if the older brother ever entered the celebration it stops there and the reason why I think Jesus says craftily as he does with that Hebraic block logic. I think he ends it there because he's saying to all of us, you finish the story with your life. Yeah. yeah. I will you embrace religion and a fatted calf, you can even call it by my name, and stay outside of the celebration while you're trying so hard and laboring so hard to just get a goat. Which, by the way, what's the biblical picture of a goat? Right? The goats don't get to enter the kingdom oh, in yes. Jesus' parable. So what is he asking for? I mean, there's so much in this. And I'm out of time, so i got to quit with that. Let me summarize. First of all, God doesn't have compassion. He is compassion. Second, God does not change his opinion of you. Amen. Very good. Period. He's not looking saying, well, this is my opinion, but you know that's wrong. The spiritual world doesn't operate this way. The divine mind doesn't think on these terms. He doesn't even see the fallen in the same way we see the fallen. True. Three. God restores you to who you truly are. Amen. And you know what that really is? When you really think about it? because of what the Hebrew words are for restore, etc. It's not a restoration, and I know even the picture kind of alludes to God pulling you out of something. Really, it's about God uncovering something. Restoration is Him uncovering for you who you are. Right. Yes. Amen. Yes. 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 Thank you, Jesus. And then lastly, which is interesting, God refuses apparent accurate accusations and invites us to celebrate anyway. That is a reconstruction of the God that Jesus did for all these people. And tomorrow as we talk about tree of life realities, we're going to look at this, we're going to deconstruct, reconstruct, do a lot of different things. And just bring it back to this one concept. It's so hard. 
Because most of us made our life's ministry about trying to fix people. And really, what God seems to be about is you just love them. And if I think they don't need fixing, I'll do it. Amen. Jeopardize for a moment. I just want what's been said to just take a moment just to seep in. (laughs) For the want of a better phrase. Just close your eyes for a moment. Just as John was finishing, I just keep your eyes closed. I, I, I just felt the Holy Spirit just say in my heart, this, right now, is a happy moment. Yes. And it's a holy moment, but it's a happy moment. Yeah. I'm not saying holy moral, I'm talking about what holiness really is, you know. Just awesome. Just a sense of God's presence as John was sharing. You know, you know, don't you? This is resonating in your heart. Many of you, I know it is. And Father, I thank you for this word tonight. Amen. Father, I thank you that it's in our hearts and it's changing our perception. Amen. Thank you, Lord. And because it's changing our perception, it's going to change the perception of this church community. It's going to change the perception of the town. It's going to change the perception of everyone we interact with and we love. It starts with us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Father, I want to say thank you for the privilege of hearing this word. Amen. Man, I wish I'd heard it about 20 years ago. <laughs> Father, thank you I've heard it now. Sure, sure moment. A holy and a happy moment. And Father, I pray for us, no matter what's, what comes in the natural, that we will together have many, many times of celebrating with our Father. Celebrating with you. Celebrating your opinion of us and each other and the world. It's going to be awesome. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You know, I just felt that, you know, probably we could identify with with both sons, each one of us in different ways, uh, in some of our thinking and behavior. But I believe that God wants us to get to the stage in our perception and our experience that when we listen to that, we identify more with the Father than with the sons. There you go. Amen. Amen. Thank and that's you, what's going to happen. More Thank and more. you, Father. Yes, Lord. I really believe that. Mm. Amen. Oh, awesome. Have a Amen. good evening. Amen.